Middle fatigue doesn't affect any physical system in the body. It doesn't affect your heart. It doesn't affect your muscles or anything like that. It affects your brain. And it affects the brain in an endurance context by making a task feel harder. Um, so it's one factor that has a negative impact on perception of effort and it increases it for the same speed. Uh, and in doing so, impacts on, on your endurance performance. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Finish Line Podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure and I'm your host John O'Regan. In this episode I'm joined by Dr Noel Brick. Dr Noel Brick is a lecturer in sport and exercise psychology at Ulster University. He previously worked as a lecturer in sport and exercise science at the Northern Regional College. He completed an undergraduate degree in sport and exercise science at the University of Limerick in 1997. He has a master's in sport and exercise at the Ulster University from 2003 and a master's in applied sport and exercise psychology at Staffordshire University from 2017. And in 2016, he completed the PhD at the University of Limerick. Noel's research interests include the impact of attentional focus cognitive strategies and metacognitive processes on the regulation of endurance performance, which is something we're going to talk about in the podcast today. And alongside his academic and research activities, Noel is also an accomplished long-distance runner, has completed more than 30 marathons and ultramarathons, including the Marathon des Saab, the Kerryway Ultra, and the Irish 24-hour national championships back in 2013 on the Mary Peters track up in Belfast, which is where we're recording the podcast today. Noel, welcome to the podcast. John, uh, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you for that very kind introduction. Kind of makes me realise how old I am when you call out the dates of, some <laughs> of, of my undergrad degree and things like that. But uh, no, it's an absolute pleasure to be here and looking forward to our discussion. Yes, and 2013 is when we first met running around the track up here. Yeah, so it's it's strange to be back here again. Um, I just remember seeing the back of you in, in that race and, and being lapped lots of times during the race but yeah um so that was my first time uh running the the 24 hour event um and that was a massive learning experience for me actually a thoroughly enjoyable event you might sort of think that doing 400 meter laps around a track for 24 hours is is monotonous and boring but actually thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it and that's what led to i suppose a lot of your research so you were probably experimenting with what you were doing now yeah, so so I suppose just to give a little bit of a, of a background, so you mentioned there some of uh, some of my training. So my original training was in in sports science, and I guess a lot of my early interests was more in sort of uh, things like like physical training, strength and conditioning type work. But actually, when I did my undergraduate degree, really my mentor there was uh, Dr. P. J. Smith. Uh, he was a, a psychologist at the University of Limerick. Uh, who actually passed away a couple of years ago, uh, but he was a very very uh, big influence in in my education. In my career at that point and I think in, in sort of the, the the sort of the early 2000s to, to early 2010s when I really started to sort of move away from team sports um, I played a, a lot of Gaelic football and things like that uh, and more into endurance running I suppose sort of ideas around kind of the psychology of how I suppose the mind and how what we think about um, and how those very strategies can influence endurance performance and, and can help athletes to perform better. So you mentioned uh, my PhD, which I completed in 2016. So right about maybe sort of 2010, 2011, I started to sort of hatch, I suppose, a few ideas from my own experiences as a runner. 
about and just sort of my own observations um, while I was running of, of kind of like what I would think about, what I would say to myself, various strategies I would use, things I would experience during events. Um, like, for example, a very um, simple one, which kind of led to a study uh, as part of my PhD, which was how maybe running with other runners versus running by yourself or, or you know, being in a pack versus leading a pack, uh, how, how that sort of influenced how I felt, um, whether it felt easier, whether it felt harder. So it was those kind of experiences as a runner that sort of really gave me the interest in the psychological side of of endurance performance and obviously how this applies to other sports as well. Uh, but from my research, endurance performance. And so so that started the research study then. And, and my research specifically is on, uh, as you mentioned, attentional focus, which might be sort of using strategies like, you know, keeping relaxed, um, focusing on maybe how I'm feeling. I'm sure we'll talk about through a lot of these things as, as we go on, but focusing how I'm feeling, uh, maybe using strategies like like self-talk, so things I say to myself. So how all these various things influence performance or how easy or hard an event feels. And then the, the last bit, I suppose, you mentioned there, which is about something called metacognition, which which is effectively thinking about our thinking. So. I'm interested in what people think about, but I'm also interested in how people think about their thinking. So how they plan their thinking, how they, where we learn the strategies that we use uh, during events. So if I say things to myself, well, where did I learn that strategy? Where did I learn that that's and how do I know that that's helpful for me? So so that's kind of a little bit of the background broadly, I guess, in, in terms of what I do and, and where some of the ideas have come from. And just to mention that, although we're both from a running background, what we're going to be talking about will apply to any sport. Absolutely, yes. So uh, I'm sure I'll probably talk about some research as we go through this, but this is endurance sports predominantly, so cycling, running, rowing, etc. But look, a lot of this is is applicable to other sports as well. I mean, athletes in most sports as part of their training or performance run in in some way. So a footballer will will do running for their training, for example. And actually, some of these strategies apply to life in general, not just to sport and to athletics, but, but to life in general as well. Yeah, I suppose life is an endurance sport. Uh, life is a marathon <laughs> yeah. or an ultra marathon <laughs> hopefully if you're thinking the name Dr Noel Brick sounds familiar you might have heard or read his much quoted and referenced research into the practical implications of smiling during strenuous activity Yes, so this was a study that we did in 2017-2018 uh, to just give you a little bit of the background to the study and where the idea came from so it kind of came from two sources. It came from some research that had been done by, um, probably by, by Professor Sam Marcora, who at the time was in the University of Kent and now is in Bologna in Italy. And he'd done some research on facial expression and how, uh, what he called a face of effort, so how frowning reflects the amount of effort that we um, put into to performing a task. So if we're running really hard and it's really difficult, our facial expression usually reveals that, that effort. So that was kind of one study he did, and and he he suggested in that study that actually that relationship might be might work two ways. So if we're expending effort, our facial expression shows it, but also making that expression can make a task feel more effortful as well. So that that was kind of one that sort of gave me an idea first of all about facial expression. And he did a second study, which is quite interesting, which. Um, basically projected images of smiling faces or frowning faces that people running on a treadmill or, or cycling actually I think it was weren't consciously aware of so they weren't uh, displayed for long enough so people can't, could consciously see them uh, but it made the task feel more effortful when people were watching the frowning face in comparison with the smiley face uh, so that was kind of one line of, of research that made me sort of think okay well when we're performing when we're when we're doing as our study was running task can our facial expression influence our performance in any way 
And then actually just sort of observing athletes and, and observing people like, for example, the marathon runner, Elliot Kipchoge, who uh, during the later stages of, of a lot of his runs seems to use smiling as a strategy. So those kind of um, observations and, and those kind of studies gave me, gave me an idea of, of doing the study that we did uh, in 2017 and 2018. Uh, so basically what we had was 24 recreational endurance runners. So these were people who had an average of about maybe four or five years of running experience. And we had them do four uh, blocks of six minute runs on a treadmill at around about 80% of their max. So it was around about for, for these runners, probably around their marathon sort of pace or maybe slightly less. And they did one of, of four, sorry, they did four different conditions. They did a condition where we asked them to smile as much as possible uh, during the six minutes, uh, to frown uh, as, and, and reproduce what they would consider their face of effort uh, we had them do like a relaxation of their hands so basically the cue was to imagine holding a crisp between your thumb and index finger tight enough so that it would stay in place but not so tight that it would it would crush your break so that was to, to relax the hands and the upper body uh, and then a control condition where we basically asked them just to do your normal kind of thoughts uh, and what we found was that in the smiling condition in comparison with the frowning condition um, participants were about 2.8 percent more efficient uh, and so we, we, we measured the amount of oxygen they were using uh, during those runs uh, and they used about 2.8% less oxygen in the, in the smiling condition in comparison with the frowning condition. And also quite interestingly as well, in comparison to those two conditions, um, participants reported feeling that the frowning condition was harder, so it felt harder uh, in comparison with the smiling condition, even though they were running at the exact same pace in both. So, so it's quite an interesting study. We didn't measure performance per se, so we didn't. Uh, measure how fast they could run. It was the same pace right the way through. Uh, but it was quite interesting to show that how we manipulated a facial expression did seem to have an impact in both how easy or hard it felt and also how efficient uh, the runners were. So, so I guess probably to, to sort of uh, to, to wind it up, probably a suggestion that comes from that is that smiling could be one of these strategies that may be useful you know, if you feel that, you know, a run is particularly hard or whatever, it could be a useful strategy to have in your kind of toolkit um, that may be useful on race day. Do you think that would work if you were out running on your own? You mentioned Elliot Kupchogi towards the later stages of race where he started smiling. Now that smile in his face will be getting more of a reaction from the crowd. So do you think it's that he's feeding off the energy coming from the crowd that's helping him get through it? it like when you come to the later stages of a marathon, as you're approaching the finish line, there's a bigger crowd there and the crowd kind of brings you into the finish. So do you think that the smile is helping you internally or is it bringing something externally? Uh, Kipchoge has actually said in interviews uh, after his first attempt to break the two-hour marathon in Monza a few years back, um, he said actually he used smiling when there was no real crowd there. He used smiling as a very deliberate strategy to, and I'm using his words now, to, to relax and to work through the pain that he was experiencing. So for him, it was a way of managing the effort and, and the discomfort he was maybe feeling at, at that point. But I think your other point is really important as well, where, you know, kind of the reaction from a crowd, and again, going back to the, the study about the smiley face versus the frowny face that Sam Marcora did, that sort of feeding off the crowd a little bit can be quite useful as well in in that one way there's other ways like you know the encouragement they shout and all that as well uh, but it, it can be useful in that way as well that if you've got a cheering supporting crowd potentially like their expression you could feed off as well in terms of of how you feel during the event and how it might lift you uh, during the event as well and uh, probably one last thing sorry to, to add into that as well which i think is quite interesting from our study was that not everybody was uh, more efficient or felt easier when they were smiling compared to the other ones and i think this is important too and particularly what what we found in that study was that we had about 11 female participants and only about three of those participants were more efficient when they were smiling. So I think the important learning point from that is 
if it's not something you feel comfortable doing, maybe in that social situation where you you maybe feel a bit odd because you're running and you're smiling and you might be conscious of what people might think, uh, then it's less likely to work for you if you don't feel that it's something you're comfortable doing. I'm glad you said that because I was thinking about running inside in a gym on a treadmill and if I saw somebody smiling and they looked like they were in pain, I'd be the kind of person that you'd be worried about what's that person thinking because I'd be thinking they look a bit mad. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very, very important. And look, I think it's like any strategy. I think um, we'll, we'll probably talk a lot about different strategies here. And part of this, and this is actually relates to the metacognition side of things as well, is part of this is we also develop our own unique strategies and our own very individual strategies uh, and what might work for me or somebody else may not work for you. Uh, and so part, I guess, of, of becoming more experienced as, as an athlete uh, in any area of, of sport is learning what works for you. And that might be learning what's motivational in terms of what you could say to yourself uh, or for a strategy like smiling. Um, again, we're doing a follow up study to that at the minute. And, and again, one thing that's coming out in that is not everybody feels comfortable doing it. Some people really enjoy doing it. And, and that's important as well, because it will work for you or, or it won't work for you, depending on what you think of it. And I think it's worth Googling Dr. Noel Brick and smiling to read some of the articles. Well, there was a very good one in the Irish Times, the Runners World did one, and they all add a little bit extra onto it. And they have a few quotes from you. So that's where you can learn a little bit more about the technique. You mentioned running with a pack versus running on your own. Do you think that running a 24-hour race on a track is easier than running a 24-hour race that might go from point to point? Being on a track, no matter where you are in the race, you're never alone. You're always amongst the crowd. So if you're at the back of the pack, there's always somebody about to overtake you or you're overtaking somebody. I think that's that's a great question. I think there's maybe two ways of looking at that. So we'll, we'll take one way first of all, which is... I think I agree with you. I think when you're running in a pack around a track and, and there's always something going on. So so you never feel you're maybe you never feel you're isolated. You never feel you're, you know, miles away from the next competitor uh, like you might do if, if, if you're doing a point to point um, event. Um, that can be really important because even though you might be you know, sort of way down the field, you may have, you maybe have somebody running beside you. Um, so, so a very sort of useful strategy um, that can sort of work or two useful strategies, actually. One, one is kind of using other participants for maybe, you know, sort of conversation or focusing on and, and a strategy like that can help you get out, get out of kind of maybe negative thoughts that you might be feeling at the time. So whereas in a point to point race, if you're maybe a mile or two behind the, the next person, uh, it can be much more difficult because you're, you're on your own, you know, you're, you're sort of maybe a long way from the next aid stop or whatever uh, there's no competitors around you and that could be quite a lonely experience and be mentally very very difficult to keep yourself going at that time uh, I guess the, the other part of, of sort of being on a track um, sometimes you can play those little games in your own head where even though somebody might be five laps ahead of you in, in the actual 24 hour race um, in your mind you could be quite competitive with them you know and, and you can sort of uh, again another strategy which is shown in research to be very useful is is this idea of sort of a head to head competition with another runner so even though you might not be competing with them effectively in, in the overall terms of the race in your mind you may well be uh, and that can be a very useful strategy to, to increase your pace again to change your focus off what you might be feeling um, when I did the race myself and this may be a similar experience to you John but when I did the, the race myself in the Mary Peters track here and you might think sort of 24 hours going around a track is, is quite monotonous and boring but that ability to sort of break the race down to smaller chunks uh, for me so whether that be just focusing on, on a single lap sometimes if you're feeling really really tired 
Um, in that particular event, every four hours, we changed direction around the track, which is wonderful. It was great. <laughs> uh, but again, so so now you're just focusing on, uh, you know, the next four hours or the next three hours rather than the next 20 hours that you might have left in the event. And and, and so that's a strategy called chonking. Um, and again, sometimes in, in a point-to-point race, that can be much more difficult uh, to do where you've You've no natural chunks in, in the in the event or in the race, uh, bar maybe sort of an aid station that you're coming to. Uh, so there's lots of strategies that you can use. Now there's other strategies, obviously in a point-to-point race. Um, you could maybe focus on the scenery. You could maybe see a hill coming up ahead of you, and you might just focus on that as as your main goal for the next hour or whatever. So there's other strategies you can use there. But that's certainly something on a track event that I, you know, some strategies that I find useful. Plus on the track, you can always say one more lap. And you're never far from your aid station. You're never far from food. There's always somebody there. And when you think about it, you're never further than 200 metres away from somebody on the track. Yeah, exactly. And and again, so all those kind of strategies of being competitive with them. Um, one thing I still remember using during that particular event um, applies to point-to-point races as well if you're closer to pack. is almost a sort of mental thing of strategy I would sort of use is, is like putting a, a lasso around the person ahead of them and this kind of mental thing of you know or a bungee cord or whatever don't let it break don't let it snap keep them keep them within that distance and, and it really does drag you along and it really gives you I suppose a focus because like say in a point to point race where you might be by yourself and I've, I've been there as well you can go into your own world of misery sometimes and it can be very very difficult to get to get out of that but, but you're quite right I mean there's always something happening always people around you do you like the misery? I love the misery. I've learned to, <laughs> I've learned to love the misery. Um, I think as an endurance athlete and an ultra endurance athlete in, in particular, look, I suppose, you know, part of maybe a strategy there as well, psychological strategy is changing your relationship with um, the boredom that, that you might feel or changing the relationship with the discomfort or the effort that you might feel. Um, and so part of that, I guess, is, is a story that you sort of uh, tell yourself uh, in a very weird way when, when it comes to some of those ra- races. Uh, I quite enjoy the isolation. I quite enjoy being out in, in the middle of, you know, a, a mountaintop somewhere with no other human beings in sight for, you know, a mile or two around you. I I th- I think that's something that you maybe learn to, or you sort of focus on. Okay, the positives of that, what's useful, what's beneficial about that, uh, and for me, it's maybe even just just time in nature, the challenge of you know, can I cope with this by myself? Can I sort of master this hill? Can I get up this hill? Can I cope with the effort and the discomfort that I'm feeling in your in your body? And, and when you come through an event like that, when, when you sort of face a challenge like that, and, and you come through, there's actually quite a sense of achievement in in, in that uh, in terms of the mental aspect uh, as much as the physical aspect. Did you hear Brendan Boyce's interview after the 50km race walk at the Dover World Championships? He mentioned the misery and, and how he, as an Irish person, loves the misery. And that's what gets him going to the end. He was smiling talking about the misery. Someone like him like thrives on that, so I just thought that was funny. Regards to smiling, do you think that could be used as a strategy to not smile at somebody to make it look like you're weaker or to smile to make it look like you're appearing stronger? I, I think so. I think so. Um, I think very deliberately it could be used as a strategy. Now, we don't necessarily have research or anything to, to back that up. Um, but I, I think actually for, for competitive endurance athletes, strategies like that, they use quite a bit. You know, you don't really want to give any sense of a game away to, to your competitors if you're in a head-to-head race. Um, so you will do probably whatever you can to, to make your competitor think, I'm strong, I'm comfortable, this is easy for me. Uh, and smiling could be part of that. Uh, we all maybe remember the sort of the famous Simon Coughlin one sort of coming around that that final bend where he sort of 
pumped his arms and had a big smile on his face uh, in 83, I think, in, in the World Championships, possibly. So, so possibly, yeah, it could be a useful strategy for, for athletes in that context. We could talk about this all day, but we better move on. There's a bit too much to talk about. Can you explain the role of cognitive strategies and metacognition as they might apply to an endurance athlete and the effects that they have on longer duration activities? Okay, so so and this is really, I guess, where a lot of my research has been. So um, we'll explain. The, so the cognitive strategies, I guess, is really what we've been talking about so far. So so there's a whole range of these. It might be self-talk. So those kind of things or statements that we say to ourselves it might be th- very simple things like you know motivational self-talk, like keep going, I can do this. I, I you know, I I can do one more lap, whatever it might be. Am I mad? Am I mad? Um, yes, probably. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> yeah. And and, and, and but, but the, the the opposite happens as well. Actually, a lot of our self talk in in really difficult moments can be quite negative. So, this is horrible. Why am I doing this? Do you know? Should should I be out here? Um, and, and and I'm sure all of us are familiar with those kind of thoughts. That's embracing the misery, that and that is the misery, and and that's kind of the the information and and the things that we say to ourselves. Um, and I suppose part of the challenge then becomes, okay, well, how do I handle that? How do I cope with that? Um, and it's probably something that that we kind of learn through experience, or something we can work through in terms of a psychological intervention. So, I suppose probably the first thing is just becoming aware in those difficult moments what you do say to yourself. Uh, is it is it very negative, and is it things like this is horrible? I hate this. I hate <laughs> I hate running. Never again. All those kind of things. Uh, or do you actually work through that and do you sort of change this? Like you know, yes. Yes, this is tough. Yes, this is really difficult, but I can do this. I've, I've done harder before. I've done this in training. I've, I've, I've kind of pushed myself hard in training. I know I'm ready for this. So, so that's kind of becoming aware of your self-talk and then maybe challenging that or using some sort of motivational statement to, to kind of work through that effort. Uh, and, and that's maybe part of loving the misery. You know, the misery doesn't necessarily go away, but it's how you cope with it and how you handle it, uh, which is maybe the psychological skill. So so that's kind of one, one uh, cognitive strategy. Uh, we spoke quite a bit about smiling, but generally relaxing uh, is quite a useful strategy as well. Can I just stop you now for a sec? I, I want to delve a bit more into the self-talk. Go for it. Yeah. That, had, that yeah. had me thinking. With the self-talk, is it a case that you would have to be honest with yourself and you have to be able to trust yourself? So if you were telling yourself, okay, one more lap or two more laps, when you complete that two more laps, should you then stop or do what you were going to do then or try and keep going again? Do you think tricking yourself is a good thing? I think it's kind of, I suppose, all part of the game that we play when we're maybe sort of trying to keep our pace up or, or complete an event. Uh, tricking ourselves, absolutely. Um, in, in a way, in a way. Um, so so if we, for example, I'm running a lap and I'm feeling really, really tired or, or I'm focusing on just getting to the next point in, in a race, like the next water stop, and I might say to myself, OK, OK, when, when I get there, I might slow down or I might quit or whatever. The usefulness of a strategy like that is, OK, if I'm feeling really, really tired really in, in a lot of uh, discomfort right now and I say to myself okay instead of focusing on the next sort of 20 miles that I have to go I'm just going to get to the next five mile point and I kid myself I'm going to stop there it shortens the event so I set a little sub goal for myself so we, this is a strategy we call chunking so I set a little sub goal for myself that okay it's not really 20 miles it's just just maybe five that I've got to go um, and I work myself through that shorter of a distance and shorter event when I get to that point, I might not feel as bad as I think I do. So you do a reassessment. You do a reassessment. Rather than telling yourself lies. Yeah. Um, and so, okay, so, well, you know, I thought I was going to give up here, but actually I did that five miles. Now I've only got 15 left to go, rather than that 20 that I was thinking about five miles back. So do you know what? 
I might just go another five. Let's see. Let's see how I feel in another five. And so chunking it down that way is not necessarily lying to yourself, but in a way it is kidding, kidding, kidding. That's sort of part of your brain that's trying to tell you, stop, give up now. This is horrible. Why are you doing this to yourself? And um, so it's that little internal battle that you have. And, and one useful strategy for that is that little sort of chunking, breaking it down and a way telling that little voice. Now, we're only going to hear. It's OK. We're only going to that to that five mile point. Um, it can be very, very useful. And then you reassess and you make Maybe realize that you're not as bad as you thought you would be. I feel okay. I can do another five, and and, and you do the the jump again. What about negative self talk? In which way? Well, say I can't do this, or I want to stop. If you have DNF'd in a race, do you think you're more likely to be negative with your self talk when you go into the next one? Okay, so so I think if you if you DNF in an earlier race, um, probably if I if I go back a little bit in terms of the timeline of that experience, probably the first thing I would do is is sort of really do. Um, kind of a, a review and an evaluation of that race itself and the question, okay, well, 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 what happened there? You know, why, why did I DNF? Was it part of my planning? Did I go too fast at the start? So maybe I need to learn a little bit about pacing and that, that's a strategy in itself. Was my nutrition or my hydration maybe not good enough? Uh, is there something I can learn there? If there is, great, I can take that into the next race. Or actually, did I maybe give in to that mental battle, that, that sort of negative voice that was telling me to stop? Uh, because maybe it was something I hadn't experienced before. Maybe, maybe physically how I was feeling at that point in time, because I'd never run that far before or gone that fast before in a race, I, I just maybe hadn't experienced before. So, okay, have I learned something from that? Do I take that into the next race? So that's probably the first part that's a reviewing. Uh, and then I can use that information to prepare and to plan for my next race in a way such that either I kind of know I'm better prepared, so I feel a bit more confident going into the race, or I've learned something about that voice, you know, that voice that was telling me to stop, that voice that was telling me that I couldn't go any further. Actually, that, that voice was not quite honest with me. I, I could have gone further. I was a bit annoyed with myself that I gave up. So the next time I hear that voice, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn to challenge it. I'm going to say, no, I'll just go that extra mile, then I'll think about it, or I'll go that extra five miles, and then I'll think about it. So in a way, it's becoming, you know, a DNF can be a really useful source of information if, if we learn from it. Now, the, the, the kind of natural thing that a lot of us do, I guess, if we DNF is we, we mentally kind of beat ourselves off a bit. We get very annoyed about it, and that's very natural and emotional reaction but actually after that just kind of reviewing it evaluating it taking what you can in terms of what you can learn from it that can be extremely useful to better prepare you for for the next event and being better prepared so in, in terms of kind of then belief and confidence going into that next event learning and preparation is a huge source of confidence and if i feel better prepared and that might be the mental strategies that I have to cope with that effort, discomfort, that that voice that is telling me to stop. Uh, if I now know that I've got some sort of mental strategy in place to deal with that, then that helps my confidence. That helps me know that I will be able to cope a little bit better the next time. Yeah, that all makes perfect sense. And me, I see that negative self-talk seems to affect a lot of people, not just during a race, but before they even start a training session, thinking that they can't do what they're supposed to do or what everybody else is doing and that just in some ways assess them up for failure before they begin but if you're telling yourself you can't do it and you don't do it you're proving yourself right so yeah you're not really setting yourself up for failure because you've succeeded in proving yourself right yeah and i think even during a race as well you know a very simple thing is um if you reach a point in a race where, where you're telling yourself i can't go on i can't go any further and, and you use that chunking strategy. So you maybe said, okay, well, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to go 30 seconds more. That's a part of the little game you might play. I'm just going to go 30 seconds more. Um, 
and you think, okay, well, okay, I can do 30 seconds. If you do that 30 seconds, in fact, even if you do one step more, you've already proven that voice that says you can't go on, you can't do this. You've already proven it a liar because 30 seconds ago it was saying you couldn't go any further. You had to stop right now. Um, and so breaking it down that way, then you think, okay, well, if that voice is telling me I can't get to the next mile point, it's lied to me once. It might be still lying to me. So so that's part of the, the, the internal battle with. And, and and as you maybe sort of get a little bit more experience than be it in, in that race or through races, you kind of realize that voice is very natural. It doesn't always go away, but you've now got a bank of evidence to prove it wrong, a bank of experiences uh, to prove it wrong. That, that that voice that said you had to stop now, well, in that race, I kept going. I didn't have to stop, really. Uh, in, in, in my training session, this is where training becomes really useful as well. I think we're not just talking about races here. You know, in, in that training session where you maybe go out to do you know, 12, 400 meters or, or whatever it might be, um, you will reach probably a point in, in a session like that where it's really difficult. It's really hard. You're really in a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. Um, but just again, OK, you know what? I've I've eight done. I plan to do 12. I'll do one more and I'll get to that ninth one. And again, I think, OK, that's really dull. I can do one more. I can do one more. And that's all a sort of developing your strategies of what you say to yourself and what you find is useful for you and b giving evidence all the time that that voice you hear sometimes is not necessarily uh, telling you something that you can't do um, and, and it's, it's providing evidence actually that you can do what it says you can't and as you're explaining chunking and how you break things down I'm thinking now of a multi-stage race something at the Marathon de Saab that we've both done that's broken down into stages that happen per day and then each stage is broken down again into checkpoints. Mm -hmm. So you've manageable pieces throughout each stage as well. And then you've the end of the day then to reassess yourself and prepare for the next day. Yeah. And again, an event like that, just like any race, actually, even just like a marathon. Again, part of the strategy there is, you know, if, you, if you're standing on that start line on sort of day one uh, and you're thinking, I have 150 odd miles to do as it was the year I did it. Um, Mentally, that can be very challenging because suddenly you're in the desert. It's very, very warm. You've got this maybe 12 kilo backpack on. Uh, the, there's a big crowd around you. And yes, you're excited for the event. But actually, that sort of thought of wow, 150 miles over seven days in, in these conditions or even in a half marathon or marathon starting at the start, start line and thinking 26 miles, that's how am I going to do this or 50 miles if it's an ultra. So again, that's sort of chunking off. I'm, I'm just going to focus on day one. If it's the marathon sample, I'm just going to focus on maybe the first two, three miles, get my pace right, get my strategy right, not worry too much about the people around me, run my race, my plan, my pacing. Uh, and again, even in something like the, the marathon, the Sabla, again, in day one, where it's maybe 20 miles, you know what, I'm just going to focus on getting to the first uh, water station uh, and then I'll reassess and I'll reevaluate and then I'll go from there again. And it's almost like jumping from from station to station to station. And then you break it down that way and if each station is about five miles apart, you think, OK, well, I've just got four four chunks to run here, four segments to run. That's not so bad. It's not really 20 miles. It's it's, it's four chunks, you know, four to, four times five miles. Um, and so that's the game. And then suddenly that doesn't sound so bad, even though it's the same thing. It doesn't sound so bad as saying, well, I've got 20 miles to run today and it's amazing to think that almost everybody has those same thoughts you could be spending two years preparing for a race like that and you're so excited about it but then when you're on the start line it's only a week out of that two years and you're dreading it but then once you start moving everything seems to be okay then it does. And, and I think, I mean, a part of that's for a very natural, you know, before any event that we do, be it, you know, a sporting event and endurance events that we're talking about, but any sort of sporting event or any big life event, um, 
anxiety is normal. It's, it's normal to feel anxious. It's normal to feel nervous. Uh, and part of that anxiety and that nervousness uh, is because there's, there's a certain degree of uncertainty. No matter how well we've prepared, uh, no matter how well we've, we've trained, etc. there's always, if it's an event, if it's a distance that we haven't run before or an event that we haven't done before, there will always be that thought of, will I be able to do it? You know, will I, will I be able to get through it? Um, and probably the other thing that causes a lot of that, that anxiety and that nervousness is this is really important to me. You know, I've trained a lot for this. I've prepared a lot for this. I've told a lot of people that I'm doing this. And if I don't finish, what will they say? So so all those kind of thoughts come in there. And, and that that's our nervousness. The importance of the event, the uncertainty about the event creates the negative thoughts of, can I do it? Maybe I can't. Maybe I'm not strong enough, fit enough, fast enough, whatever it might be. And so then those strategies come in. Well, you know what? A year ago before I started training for this event, I couldn't do five miles. I couldn't do one mile. And I did all those things in my training. So if I could do those, even though I once thought I couldn't, then, then I can do this too. And again, that's all part of the evidence to, to sort of argue against that voice that might be telling you that you can't. That's self-talk. Where do we go from here? Okay, so I guess we've actually covered quite a lot there. We've covered self-talk. We've covered um, a little bit on chunking. Actually, it was probably one of my favorite uh, strategies. One strategy I think that's really useful for ultra-athletes, which is maybe less spoken about, is actually using distraction as a strategy. Quickly cover the research on this. Distraction is maybe a strategy where we maybe focus on the scenery around us. We maybe focus even in our own heads. We daydream a little bit or we we think about things that we may be going to do the next day or what we're going to have for dinner that night or, or whatever. If we look at the research on this, distraction, if we talk purely in terms of performance, a lot of the research suggests that when we use strategies like that, we actually slow down a little bit um, because we may be taking our mind off what we're doing. Yeah, that's because you lose concentration. I find that in an ultra-endurance race, like a 24-hour, if you lose your concentration, you go too fast. If you're running a marathon and you lose concentration, you slow down. Yeah, and I guess I suppose really there what we're doing in an ultra because of the, the long duration of the event, we are holding back a little bit. We're, we're running at a slower pace uh, and it can be very easy when you go into your own sort of world that, that you sort of pick up towards maybe a more natural kind of uh, pace rather than holding back. The marathon is the opposite. The marathon in many respects is a little bit like a long sprint. You, you're you're okay, you're holding back to a certain extent, but actually you're, you're trying to do an event in, in as fast as possible time if you're trying to set a, a personal best or something like that. And so distraction, then you, you do tend to slow down a little bit. Where it becomes really, really useful. And again, this is part of, of guess, learning, you know, what's useful and when it's useful uh, in something like an ultra is dealing with things like, you know, you're out there for a long, long time. It can get a little bit boring. It can get a little bit monotonous. And, and so kind of taking your mind off what you're doing a little bit can help distract a little bit from maybe the sensations you're feeling or, or sensations of boring. And it can help pass those miles and it can help pass uh, the sort of the, the time and the duration out there. So I might be looking at the scenery. It might be like, say, sort of daydreaming a little bit or whatever, uh, whatever's kind of, you know, it's very much an individual thing as well. I've, I've gone through races where I'm, I'm maybe specifically looking for certain landmarks or certain points that I know are quite scenic along the route. And, and it sort of helps you through a little bit and it helps you kind of deal with the, the effort and, de- and deal with the miles. With distraction, is that something that just happens or can you make yourself get distracted? Both. Uh, both. So in our research, we've kind of used two terms. We've used the term active distraction, which is really a very deliberate attempt to just purposefully distract yourself from, from what you're doing. The opposite to that is, so, th- so that might be sort of things like, you know, I'm, I'm just deliberately going to sort of 
go through all the names of all the players that played for Man United in the 1995 season or something like that. So that might be one thing. Um, involuntary distraction is where you just get distracted by things around you. So, so you might be doing an ultra and you suddenly you're running through this beautiful forest or whatever. There's bird sounds, there's trees, all that sort of thing. So, so your attention gets captured uh, by, by those kind of uh, those views. The sort of difference in, in the two of those, um, I guess, in terms of the research is actually when we when our attention is, is grabbed by things uh, without necessarily us intending it to do so. Um, the research suggests actually that that's quite good in terms of our, our mood and our well-being and, and how we feel after the event. Um, so distraction can be quite useful there as well in terms of maybe sort of giving us a bit of a, a mental boost or, or sort of a, a lift in addition to the exercises and the activity that we're doing as well. You just made me recall something there that happened with me a couple of years ago. And it must have been a distraction strategy that was applied. I was doing the Tenzing Hillary Everest Marathon with Mark Pollock. And we were out for quite a while during that race. And Mark fell asleep as we were walking, running. And he fell this kind of side of a, a mountain path. So he was falling. When we started going again, I knew that Mark was starting to fall asleep again. So I started asking him questions and talking to him. We had kind of talked about everything that we could talk about at that stage. So I didn't have to start making things up. So I was asking him stuff like to recite his phone number, what age he was, just little things like that, and he was answering the questions. So that sounds a little something like what you're mentioning there. It does, I, I guess, just kind of using those strategies just, just to have something to focus on rather than just, just literally. I mean, I guess in that event, you've, you've got a lot of other things to cope with, like sleep deprivation maybe and, and mental fatigue and things like that Yeah, as that well. was a big thing, yeah. The, the air of mental, I'm sort of going off a slight tangent here actually, but I think it's, it's important to that example that you gave. The air of mental fatigue is really quite an interesting one in, in endurance activity as well. And for an, an event like that where we, we mentally get quite tired uh, again, the research shows that that has an impact on endurance performance. It feels harder or a pace drops uh, for the same same level of effort. So little things like you're sort of talking about there to, to sort of maybe sort of use some strategy to, to keep a focus, uh, whether that's just maybe sort of conversing or whatever. That can help, I guess, cope with an extreme ultra endurance event like that, where mental fatigue and, and sleep deprivation actually can have a, a big impact on performance. Can you prepare yourself to deal with mental fatigue? Um, yeah, I guess. Okay, there's maybe sort of two here. So one is, I guess, what you do before an event. Um, so maybe just to give a little bit more background here. So there's been studies, a few studies done over the last few years where they've deliberately had somebody do a mentally challenging task before an endurance event and the, the endurance event might be something like a, a 3k on a treadmill or, or what's called a, called a time to exhaustion task where you go for as long as possible at maybe sort of 80 percent of your max or something like that um, and the mentally challenging task that they they've had people doing is is sort of like a, a computer-based uh, sort of task where you've got to watch maybe these letters appearing up on a screen and every time you see a letter in a certain color you've got to respond or, or whatever uh, now that sounds like something that's easy to do but it involves a lot of concentration and in these studies they've had people do those things for about 90 minutes so it's extremely uh, fatiguing mentally uh, and what those studies have found is that when people then do the endurance task they generally perform worse um, because of the mental fatigue but it feels harder so I guess the, the sort of implication there for real life is that you, if you're doing an event like an endurance event or whatever to try as much as possible to not engage in any really mentally demanding uh, activities beforehand. So, I mean, that might be a really challenging work-based task or, or whatever it might be to, to sort of, get, I guess, get enough sleep as well um, beforehand. 
but also what's, what I guess is quite a useful strategy as well, which which most uh, maybe don't think of as a psychological strategy, uh, but but a, a nutritional strategy, which is taking caffeine uh, before an event. So we know that caffeine can counteract the the, the effects of, of sort of mental fatigue. And actually, in the absence of mental fatigue, uh, caffeine does have a positive effect on endurance performance uh, in a number of ways. It affects us physiologically, so it actually can spare carbohydrate and increase the amount of fat that we're using as a, as a fuel, which obviously is, is, is useful during longer events like uh, ultra-endurance events. Uh, But actually, caffeine also has an effect on the brain um, where it can actually reduce the effect of um, sort of mental fatigue uh, and, and help us feel more alert, help us feel uh, more uh, awake, or I guess, or whatever. Um, and, and the impact of that is, is a positive effect on endurance performance as well. So there's a number of little things, I guess, you can do to, to avoid mental fatigue or, or to help cope with mental fatigue. Now, before we started recording, we were briefly talking about the psychobiological model. Can you explain to me a bit about that? Okay, so um, maybe just to, to sort of chat a little bit about kind of a, a few models here, and I'll, I'll talk about psychobiological model and also the, the, the um, central governor model very briefly. Um, so these are kind of two, I guess, leading theories um, that try to explain the, the ultimate limits uh, to, to endurance performance. And effectively, what they kind of suggest is that what limits our ability as, as endurance athletes is, okay, so physiological factors are still important, like the amount of oxygen we can take up and use and, and various physiological metabolic thresholds like lactate profile and things like that. So those things are, are still important. Uh, but actually, what both of these sort of models suggest is that it's our brain that's the ultimate limiter of endurance performance. But they slightly differ in terms of how they, they propose the role for the brain. So the central governor model really suggests that it's some sort of subconscious part of the brain that stops us from going too fast, too hard, uh, in, in their sort of terms, uh, stops us from causing some sort of catastrophic failure uh, in the body. It's a very, very controversial model. It's probably one that maybe a lot of people might have heard about, but it's, it's controversial in terms of really evidence to suggest that there's any part of the brain that acts as this subconscious controller. Yeah, so it's a theory rather than evidence-based. Would that be right? It is because I guess, okay, so so in theory, um, the idea that there's some part of the brain that acts as this ultimate regulator or ultimate limiter to, to performance uh, is very plausible. But actually, w- when it comes to testing that uh, empirically and having actually scientific evidence that suggests, okay, this is the part of the brain and this is how it works to, to limit performance in, in a subconscious way, it's very hard to, to find plausible good scientific evidence to, to support that theory. And and it's, it's actually over the last few years a theory that has kind of undergone a number of revisions which have made it probably less and less plausible. Probably a theory that's that's got a little bit more evidence to, to back it up. And a lot of the things that we've been talking about actually uh, come from studies that have provided evidence that, that support this model, is, is the psychobiological model. So this is a model by um, Professor Sam Makora, who, who had mentioned a little bit earlier on when we were talking about the facial expression uh, research. And very simply, what this uh, model suggests is, is that the ultimate limiter uh, and what regulates endurance performance are, are psychological factors as, as the main level of explanation, the first level of ex- explanation. And the two main psychological factors are our level of motivation, so how motivated we are uh, to exert effort on a task. Uh, and then the second one is our perception of effort, so how hard or how strenuous it feels when we're actually doing the task. And, and the model suggests then that anything that either impacts on our motivation or our perception of effort will have either a positive or negative impact on endurance performance. So if we take, for example, what we were just talking about, mental fatigue, 
Middle fatigue doesn't affect any physical system in the body. It doesn't affect your heart. It doesn't affect your muscles or anything like that. It affects your brain and it affects the brain in an endurance context by making a task feel harder. Um, so it's one factor that has a negative impact on perception of effort and it increases it for the same speed. Uh, and in doing so, impacts on, on your endurance performance. Self-talk works in the other way. Um, so when you're using self-talk, research has shown it kind of works both if it's motivational self-talk it increases your level of motivation uh, and it also works to reduce your perception of effort as well so by impacting on both of those psychological factors the idea is that it can improve endurance performance and, and a lot of studies have shown that self-talk uh, can ha certainly in the lab and lab-based studies the motivational self-talk can have a positive effect on, on endurance performance um, interesting study which I think is obviously very very relevant for um, endurance ultra endurance events uh, it's very few studies I kind of mentioned there in the lab very few studies that have actually tested these things in the field so with athletes who are performing in events uh, in real life as such but there's one nice study that was done by Alistair McCormick uh, and, and uh, Sam Cora and Carl Mine a few years back uh, where they actually had uh, participants who were doing a 60 mile ultra endurance event uh, 60k or 60 miles I think it was 60 miles but they basically went through uh, a self-talk training uh, intervention before the event um, and so it was very very simple things like, like we've been talking about you know changing your self-talk if it's negative to, to more motivational type things um, like I can do this keep going uh, etc and what they found was the final study didn't find that there was an actual benefit in endurance performance per se but what they found which was I guess encouraging was that a lot of the participants who were in the self-talk intervention um, like the intervention found it helpful for them and we're still using it six months later during their endurance events so that little anecdote I guess and that little story kind of is important for two reasons one is that these kind of strategies, yes, we have a lot of evidence to suggest that they're useful in the lab, but when it comes to events in real life, uh, I guess the implication there is one, they can be useful, but for participants, it's when they're useful. Uh, it's what's useful for you. So what might be motivational for me to say to myself might not necessarily be motivational for anybody else. Uh, and this is where I guess my research on metacognition comes in. It's knowing what's useful and when it's useful. Uh, and I guess the trick for most um, athletes is maybe having a range of these kind of strategies, knowing what's useful for you in terms of self-talk, knowing how to relax if you need it, having something like smiling, um, chunking as a strategy. And the trick is kind of knowing what's useful and when it's useful. So I'm not, you know, in an endurance event, I'm not going to be using self-talk, positive motivational self-talk all the time. I don't need to sometimes. I'm not going to be using distraction when I'm finding it really, really difficult because it doesn't work for me. Um, when I've got one mile to go, I don't necessarily need to use chunking. Um, but at other stages of the race and at different points during the race, those different things can be useful. Uh, and in terms of metacognition, uh, that's something called conditional knowledge. So it's, it's what's useful and when it's it's beneficial and when it's helpful for you. Do you think your perception of others can affect your performance? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, I guess prob probably one of the main psychological ways that that can impact on, on, on your performance is, is something called self-efficacy, which is maybe our sort of our belief uh, in ourselves and our belief in what we can achieve. Um, if, if I sort of turn up an event and, and I see people like John O'Regan standing on the start line and things like that, I'm going to think, oh, well, OK, well, I'm not going to perform very well here. I'm not going to win the race, obviously. Or like and, that. Then, and then you're thinking, hang on, he's not actually dressed to go running. He's wearing jeans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but it would certainly have an impact on my belief. Now, if I suddenly find out he's not running, then then brilliant. I suddenly realise I've got a chance again. But those kind of thoughts. So that so that's something called self-efficacy. 
And self-efficacy can be sort of impacted on things like maybe my own belief in myself, so my own preparation or how well I've performed previously. Uh, but it can also be maybe sort of influenced by those other kind of situational and contextual things um, that I see that, that are around me. Um, like, for example, looking at a competitor and kind of thinking, well, they're, they're, they're faster than me. I know they're faster than me based on their previous events or whatever. And, and that's quite interesting because then my own belief can ultimately impact on how I perform regardless of, of, of sort of, uh, of, of anybody else and, and what they really do. Yeah, I see that happen quite a lot where I have athletes going to a race and they're full of confidence and then they look around them and they're basically looking at the way people are dressed and that becomes intimidating. But then when the race starts, they've lost it at the beginning because they're not feeling the way they were and they're not as confident starting off the race. They might sit back a bit. It actually happened to me a couple of times. Um, one notable time was in an adventure race where I let somebody get quite a big lead at the beginning because I didn't believe that I should have been there with them. So they might have had maybe six miles on me for the first half of the race, and then it was four minutes at the end of it. Mm -hmm. And that's because of the lack of self-belief, but it was based on my perception of that or a competitor. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of strategies that we can bring in here. So I think one of the first things just to mention, though, uh, again, just the story you kind of tell yourself around maybe your perceptions of others that you might see in the start line. So again, just kind of using some of the things you said there, that idea that, you know, I don't believe based on what I think that athlete looks like or maybe what I know about them in terms of their performance. So already, again, going back to self-talk, I'm, I'm, I'm already telling myself a story there. I'm, I'm not as good as them. I can't keep up with them. I won't be as fast as them or whatever. But, but actually, if we boil that down a little bit more and we kind of think about my race and my strategy, if I'm starting to think about things like that, then I'm, to a certain extent, I'm starting to think about one, things that are outside my control. I can't necessarily control how that athlete is going to race. They may have a different strategy to me. They may not have had, a, you know, they could be coming into the race with an injury. They may not have had a good run up to the race. So I'm, I'm kind of telling myself a story based on things that I haven't been able to control and that I don't necessarily know. Um, so I guess probably the most useful strategy there uh, in that context then is sort of maybe just, okay, not focusing on those external things, focusing just on what I control. And what I can control are things like my self-talk. I can control what I'm telling myself. So maybe I need to tell myself a slightly different story. Maybe I need to focus on my own race. So I probably will have turned up to that race with a strategy or a plan about how I'm going to pace it. And I maybe just remind myself of that. And I remind myself, okay, well, I don't really care what they're going to do. I'm going to uh, focus on my strategy, my plan, my race, my event. And if they do something else, fine, that's OK. I can't really control that. So I guess maybe then it becomes a focus more on the process and the performance, including my strategy, my self-talk, all those kind of things, my mental strategies that I use, and less so on, on what somebody else is doing and, and their performance and their strategy, which, which I can't really influence or, or certainly I can't certainly control anyway. And these tools that we've been talking about, are they something that we develop over time? And do you think anybody can actually apply these? Absolutely. I think there's a number of ways, I guess, you can learn these. Uh, I mean, one is, is really through experience and even just that sort of example we were just using, I guess, a very common thing for beginner runners to do, uh, maybe somebody doing their first marathon or something like that. Uh, again, the influence of other people is off the start line just to, to shoot off with the crowd and, and to sort of get caught up in the whole emotion of the event and the excitement of the event. But we probably all quickly learned that comes with a bit of a cost if, if we go too fast. So what I would suggest is is really, really useful 
and it's something that we don't always do, but can be really helpful is to help learn your own strategies is to not just plan, not just be aware of what you're doing during an event, but to review afterwards. Review what worked for you. What was useful for you? What did you say to yourself and how did you feel uh, when you're saying that in, in your own head? Was it positive? Was it negative? What could you say to yourself in those difficult, challenging moments? So so that kind of reviewing is really, really useful to learn, to learn these strategies. Um, a couple of years ago, 2018, I, I did a study with um, runners who, who in the sort of year previously had, had done a Couch to 5K program. So these were all beginner runners. And one of the questions we asked them was, where did you learn your strategies that you use, like self-talk, etc.? cetera? Uh, for some of them, it was experience. For a lot of them, it was from other runners, from coaches. Um, so just those conversations that we have when we were out uh, having a run, like, you know, you know, how do you pace something? How, how, how do you pace a marathon? Uh, how do I know if I'm going too fast? Um, so learning those kind of things through experience and picking them up from other people. Um, obviously, from, from sort of psychologists, I mean, um, if we can do a quick plug here, um, I, I've been working over the last couple of years with with a group of other researchers from other universities on a project called the Resist Project. And we, we set up this project uh, and the title Resist came from this idea of resisting the urge to, to stop or to quit or slow down during uh, endurance events. Uh, and so we developed a, a website um, which has a lot of these strategies on them. And, and our idea was that we wanted to kind of give these strategies to endurance athletes for free, effectively, because give psychology away for free because they're useful for elite performers, but they're also useful for beginners who, who just want to take up running as a hobby and, and as a fun, uh, as a, a, to, to sort of have some fun and to get some exercise. Um, so you can learn about a lot of these strategies that if I can uh, sort of give the website. It's, oh, yeah, uh, please do. Um, so it's, it's www resist-stopping.com and there you'll find some uh, videos and also some kind of written uh, sections but some videos where we talk through the strategies like learning how to pace like self-talk uh, like attentional focus including distraction um, all the relaxation including smiling um, all those kind of things um, so lots of I guess ways you can learn these strategies um, but certainly that's one that we hope is, is sort of useful for people to learn them as well Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that now because Part of the reason for this podcast is to try and be educational and informative. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm, I'm really looking for. So you can pass on anything like that. Anything you think would be of information, please pass it on. I was speaking to you a while back about getting together for the podcast and then we weren't talking. And then Steve Magnus put up a post of an article that you were referencing. And that's what got me contacting you again. So that's from a book that you have Put a few chapters into what's the name of the book so the book is called uh, endurance performance in sports psychological theory and interventions um and it's edited by dr carla mayan who now is at uh, st mary's university in twickenham um she was previously at the university of kent uh, and she was one of my collaborators in the the resist project um, carla actually led the, the resist project and it's, it's a really nice book where a lot of these strategies um Again, written, written, I guess, by academics. Uh, so it's very much evidence-based strategies that we know are helpful for endurance performance. And, and uh, I guess a lot of things uh, that we've sort of been talking about here. Um, I'll give Carol a plug for the book. So it's it's available on Amazon as well if you just sort of search um, endurance performance in sport. And I think we sort of really, I guess, when we were sort of writing, certainly when I was writing my chapters in this book, uh, very, very conscious of two things. One is that we wanted to talk about what evidence was out there and what we know is useful. Uh, but also to present in a way that's actually usable and, and that people can sort of pick up this book, se select a chapter on self-talk or attentional focus or whatever it might be, goal setting, et cetera, goal striving, 
and be able to, to take something from it that will help their own performance uh, or to help their own activity in, in, in some way. Um, so, yeah, if, if, if I can say it's, it's, a, it's a really nice book and, and well worth a read. And the fact that you mentioned it's evidence-based is quite important because you learn a lot in such a short space of time because it can take you a lifetime to pick up stuff like that. You might never learn it yeah. until you're actually introduced to it. And you're involved in a new book as well, you were telling me? Yeah, this is a book currently still being written. Um, it'll be a little while before it's out. Uh, so this is a book that I'm, I'm writing with um, Scott Douglas, who's um, who's written a, a few excellent books. Um, Advanced Marathon, is that one of Adva- his books? Advanced Marathon. Okay. Um, he had a really nice book a year or two ago called Running Is My Therapy. So Scott and myself sort of got together, I guess, through some email exchanges where uh, Scott has done a few articles on Runner's World um, about uh, some of the, the, the studies that I've published. Uh, and through some e- email exchanges, we sort of came up with this idea of, OK, you know, these strategies are, yes, useful for sport, useful endurance athletes. But actually, they're, they're, there's also crossover and they're useful for a lot of other areas of, of life as well. You know, in, in any sort of difficult event, for example, that, that we do. What we say to ourselves and, and sort of thoughts about, I can't do this. I mean, that's not just for endurance athletes. That happens a lot in, in life in general. So so the idea of the book was how these strategies relate uh, and how athletes think um, maybe relates to, to life in general, to business context, to, to, to sort of other contexts outside of sport. Uh, so hopefully this will be a book that we, we sort of get completed later this year um, and so hopefully sort of published uh, very soon. The working title is called Think Like an Athlete. Um, whether that will be the final title or not, I'm not so sure but but it's 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 one that i'm really excited writing about at the minute and and hopefully will be something useful for people can we talk a little bit about the scientific side of the training and there are a few words terms that people are hearing quite a lot but they might be that familiar with can you explain vo2 max yep so the first thing I'll say is, is the psychology of it is very much scientific uh, side of it as well. But this, is, I guess, is the, the more sort of physiological side of it. I think it's a really interesting story to, to kind of tell in all of this. Um, That's so, my ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Okay, so so I suppose VO2 max is probably a term most people would be we would be familiar with. Um, effectively, or basically, what what the, what it means is is the most amount of oxygen. So that's the O2, uh, the volume of oxygen VO2 uh, that our body can use when when working at our max. Um, so VO2 max. Um, from research, really going back to to the early 1920s, um, when when this kind of um, capacity was first measured. This idea of that there's like a physiological limit to, to our body, um, uh, to, to, to our performance, um, and this is our, our sort of uh, VO2 max, the most amount of oxygen that our body can use when we're working at, at our absolute max. Um, it's typically text, uh, tested in a lab where we have people going from a very easy speed, progressively getting faster and faster until they reach a point where, where they can't keep going anymore. If anybody's ever done like a bleep test in, in school or anything like that, um, it's, it's basically like a bleep test on, on a treadmill. And the idea is that I guess VO2 max is limited by certain physiological factors like the the most amount of, of oxygen that we can pump via our heart and, and carry to, to our muscles, uh, the amount of oxygen that our muscles can extract uh, from that blood and, and actually use to, to create energy aerobically. I guess in, in, in terms of so its usefulness, um, VO2 max is a correlate of endurance performance, but not necessarily a good correlate of endurance performance. In other words, it doesn't predict how well people perform terribly well. Um, if you've got a high VO2 max, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a faster athlete, be it runner, cyclist or whatever, uh, than the person that you're competing against. There's a lot of other factors as well that limit uh, endurance performance. So, for example, uh, another one of those is, is how economical or how efficient that you are. Uh, so how much energy you're 
burn when you're running it at a certain speed. So the VO2 max, it's more of a nice to know rather than a need to know for your average runner. Absolutely, absolutely. Nice to know in terms of, so it kind of gives you a nice, now I'll add something to this which is quite interesting too, but nice to know in terms of what, what is, say, your, your potential, your capacity. That's kind of generally how it's sort of presented. The way I like to visualize it is uh, if you imagine sort of climbing your ladder, the VO2 max is, is really the top of your ladder. Uh, and a huge amount of it is genetic, but obviously training influences as well. So training can make that ladder a little bit higher. But I guess in terms of performance, it depends on what step you're on uh, on that ladder. You know, so you might have a relatively short ladder, but you might be right at the very top of it. Somebody else might have a slightly longer potential or bigger potential, but might be halfway up their ladder. And so you uh, perform then. So, so there's a lot of other factors that, that influence uh, performance other than VO2 max. And unless you're going to do something with the results, there's no real need to be paying the money for the test. If you go into a lab and get the test done and you, you've been given training zones, you have to use the training zones to benefit from it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so and, and I guess there's other tests then that you can maybe sort of more accurately identify those training zones like like lactate profiling and things like that. What we've actually found just, just I guess, sort of for, for people's own interest is that um, a lot of uh, watches kind of give a predictor of VO2 max. Um, and depending on whether you use maybe the heart rate monitor with the watch and things like that, they, some of the better watches are actually very, very accurate at estimating VO2 max. I found that, especially with the, well, I use Garmin and if you're using the heart rate strap as you mentioned along with the watch they can be very close to what you get in your lab now something I've mentioned to athletes you might be able to confirm this or knock it down with the VO2 max the reading that comes up on your watch it changes from session to session that's basically because during a training session you're not getting fit you're losing fitness and the reading that comes up on your watch is a measurement of your estimated or a guesstimated VO2 max at that moment in time it's after the training with your rest and recovery that your fitness improves. So that's a, a catalyst to improve. So I would say that your VO2 max needs to come down with your watch in order to go up. Would you agree with that? Uh, as in getting that training stimulus, which is going to... Yeah, if you were training in a gym and you're using weights, you go to failure. And during training, you're not getting fitter towards the end of the session because you're getting tired. So your VO2 max reading on your watch is a reflection of what you've just done. So it's your state at the end and it's how you come back from that that gives you the, uh, I suppose, the catalyst to actually improve your VO2 max. Yeah, so, so I guess the, the rest and recovery. The, the rest and recovery the, the, and the, then the, the easier get. sessions. Yeah, so 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 I, I guess it's a very important point. I mean, a lot of the adaptations that we get that are going to improve our performance, be it raise that, that VO2 max over time, uh, improve our efficiency or whatever, I mean, really, those those adaptations, those improvements are made in the rest and in the, in the recovery after a training session. The training session provides the stimulus, uh, but it's the rest and the recovery where you get an increase in, in sort of capillaries in the muscle, uh, increase in, in sort of the ability of, of, of your blood to carry more oxygen to the muscle, etc. All these things happen in recovery. Um, so, so it's maybe an important point, but if, if you're sort of doing a lot of training where you're getting a lot of stimulus but not getting the recovery, then, then effectively you're not getting the improvement that you might otherwise get from that training. And then plus, if you're not doing the training that demands the recovery, like that you're taking too much time off after too many easy sessions, you're not going to improve. Oh, yeah. So you have to apply the correct 
ratio of stress rest to allow the adaption yeah absolutely um and and i guess that's where you know and, and look there's lots of elements you can bring in there in terms of the type of training sessions you do and sort of you know whether that impacts on vt max or efficiency or the muscle's ability to use oxygen or, or whatever uh, and i guess a well-rounded training program incorporates all of those things but fundamentally the, the rest as well to, to allow you sort of get those gains and get that improvement what would you suggest as a typical week's training for say a three or 30 marathon runner okay um Gosh, <laughs> you're challenging me here now. Not an expert in this sort of area, but I'll talk about maybe my own, what I've learned based on the research of, of the kind of things that, that's sort of useful. Uh, and always keeping in mind, I guess, you know, like the psychological strategies that we mentioned, different things are beneficial for different people and, and different programs can be effective for different people. Um, I guess in, in my own sort of training, and I, I actually some feedback from you could be brilliant here as well John um, but, but my own sort of training session two things I try to, to sort of incorporate in a typical sort of weekly cycle maybe or whatever um, one is kind of the, the, the ratio of more intense work to, to easier or lighter work um, and so I very much I guess follow the sort of principles of, of a guy called Stephen Sailor here who, who sort of advocates like a, an 80-20 so 80% sort of lighter easier type work 20% where it's maybe higher intensity so maybe your interval type work or whatever um, so my typical training volume is maybe you know I, so my marathon best uh, over the last few years has been about 310 308 there thereabouts um, so for me in terms of volume I will sort of be getting up to maybe 60 70 miles a week in, in my training for, for that event if I was doing ultra it would be longer but uh, slightly different in terms of the look of the week uh, and I try to include some key sessions there so uh, and as most runners probably do so I've got, I've got my long run in there um, I'll have an interval type session there as well uh, and then depending sometimes I'll have maybe more of a tempo type session um, but the tempo one I've sort of learned for you know a little bit more about recently I don't find it works as well for me it's, it's very physically metabolically and cognitively fatiguing um, and I find for those tempo sessions I probably don't get the benefit that I otherwise might from a different type session that's very similar to the way I structure the training with my own club and with the tempo run we have that midweek but if there's a race on at the weekend we move the tempo run from midweek to the start of the week because it takes longer to recover from yeah the interval session, although it feels harder when you're doing it, because it's in shorter bursts, you recover quicker. Yeah. So it's, it's easier to switch the interval session to midweek. Now, some people will be saying, well, why aren't you knocking that out altogether and tapering? If you're training for a marathon and there's a race happening during a marathon training cycle, it's a race of lesser importance. So it has to fit into the training cycle. Mm -hmm. You have to stay focused on what the end goal is. Mm-hmm. I think people get too uh, addicted to racing and it's happening now with parkrun, although they say it's not a race, but people do race parkrun and they want to beat their time every Saturday. So in turn what happens is they do their two club sessions, then they go out and they're not doing the parkrun as a tempo pace, they're racing it and then they're going into the next run fatigued. They're taking away from the recovery. Would you agree with that? In, in terms, oh, of I mean, agree with what I'm saying. In terms of how you structure yeah. the week and changing it, depending. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. And and I think your point actually there is a really good one about the the longer term view and the longer term goal and and sort of doing your training with with that always in mind as well. I think is is really really important. I think some other things that are quite interesting as well in terms of so so that's kind of the basic structure for my my run. Um, but I think just linking back with what we were talking about earlier, you know, those kind of sessions, I I, I find again from my own experience but I think research backs this up as well as those kind of sessions be it the long run or or the interval session um 
practicing these psychological strategies, just, just to kind of bring that back, practicing these psychological strategies, those are really key sessions for me to, to sort of get that sort of practice in. So the interval sessions you mentioned about, you know, yes, at, during the session it's tough, it's phys- physically demanding, it's very, very difficult, there's a lot of discomfort and effort there. So that is such a great time to sort of practice your self-talk, learn about how you cope with that discomfort, using the chunking strategy to sort of break down, mentally break down those, you know, maybe sort of 10, 12 intervals that you're doing into smaller chunks of maybe two or four or whatever it is uh, because again that, that sort of practice just like any physical s- skill or technical skill that practice of those mental skills you become better aware you become more used to coping with that discomfort and that's something to remind yourself of when it comes to the race I've, I've done it in those tough sessions and if you have the luxury of doing those sessions with a club you can allow someone else to focus on the pace you can just follow and that's something that you don't have to think about and you can just think about yourself talk and practicing those tools yeah. And again, even just kind of, you know, it can be useful even just for learning about your pacing and things like that as well, using using that sort of other person for, for that, uh, for those ideas. Um, I think pacing is really interesting when we've done some research on that as well. And and, and even sort of during an event or a marathon, for example, just running with a pacer or just running with a group or whatever. Again, if you're running with a pacer, going back to what we're saying about mental fatigue and and those kind of ideas, if you're running with a pacer, you can just really relax a little bit knowing that that it's all been taken care of for you. You're not going too fast. You're not going too slow. You don't have to worry and obsess about looking at your watch. Uh, and so then you can sort of, you can relax a little bit. You can focus on your own self-talk. You can focus on your own kind of mantras or whatever you might be using. Um, and that makes the whole race a little bit simpler logistically and, and in terms of what you're thinking about as well. And would that in turn help with conserving your mental energy for the later stages of the race? That's certainly one application I, I would have of that is that, you know, the idea that, you know, again, you're, you're you're not kind of, uh, you know, dealing with your demons and that might be things like, am I going too fast? Am I going too slow? Mentally, that that's very challenging, very demanding. If I even give another example, the first time I ran a race in uh, mainland Europe was the Amsterdam Marathon. Uh, a very, very simple thing, but, you know, I was used to miles and, and minute per miles and obviously the, the event there was all in kilometres. So silly of me, but what I found I was doing a lot in that race was I was doing the mental calculation and the mental conversion from, from kilometres to miles. Um, and towards the end of the race, I just felt drained because of, of doing all this sort of thing. So if you're running with a pacemaker, all that sort of stuff's taken care of for you. So when it comes to the race, mentally, is hopefully physically, but mentally, you've got a little bit more there to cope when it does get more difficult, when you've got to use more of your, your strategies to, to get you through those final stages of the event. Um, and, and hopefully kind of using the strategy like a pacer helps spare a little bit for that. As a reminder of what we talked about, can you give us a few takeaways Okay, so um, we sort of go through maybe like a, a few main tips that I think was probably the, 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 some of the most effective stuff. Um, I think one is, is absolutely the, the self-talk um, and sort of learning about what is useful for you. Um, developing in your training, so we spoke there a little bit about, you know, harder training sessions, be it the long run or the interval sessions. Learning about what you tend to say to yourself, you know, listening to that voice that sometimes tells you you can't do something uh, and using a, a, a strategy like motivational or positive self-talk to remind yourself that, that you can do whatever that voice is sometimes telling you that you can't do. Uh, that takes practice. Uh, that takes a little bit of time to develop that. So, so, But that's certainly one thing that can be useful. 
second one, I think, which is probably one of my favorite strategies is the idea of, of sort of breaking a longer event mentally, breaking it down into smaller uh, chunks. Uh, so that might be a marathon and maybe just focusing on, on each five mile or maybe each sort of five kilometer segment. Um, so mentally, you're sort of just focusing on that little time. And in terms of that little section of the event, you've maybe got certain process goals that you might uh, focus on. So the process might be what you say to yourself. That's, that's a process. The process might be your pace. So, so the first 5K, you might plan to run at a certain pace the next 5k might be slightly different or, or whatever so focusing on those process goals for each segment uh, of that race or each chunk of that race uh, is really really useful your strategy might be to run with a pacer uh, and let the pacer take care of a lot of the the pacing for you um, so that could be really useful for certain chunks during the race as well. We spoke a little bit about relaxation strategies and in that we spoke a little bit about the, the smiling study that we did as well. Um, and what I would say about that, along with the other strategies that we spoke about as well, is, you know, learn what works for you and do strategies that work for you. Um, self-talk. What, what's motivational for me may not be motivational for somebody else but smiling is the same smiling might be useful for you uh, and for other people you might find that it's just not something you feel comfortable doing um, and you may find there's certain points in races or certain points in events where some of those strategies are, are more useful uh, than others so that would probably be my other one is is um, kind of trialing all these and, and finding out what's uh, what's useful and what's uh, beneficial for you um, we spoke a lot about distraction and how distraction can be useful, but also how sometimes it can not be so useful. It might maybe cause you to run too fast sometimes or, or too slow sometimes. So again, finding out what can be useful and when it can be useful for you as well. Uh, and probably the, the final thing I would say, which kind of brings all that together, which people rarely do. A lot of us plan very carefully and, and very methodically before races. We plan our nutrition, we plan our strategies, we plan all these plan. You know, we know where the water points are. We know where the bag drop is, all that kind of thing. So I would say be as methodical um, about reviewing the race as well. So and, and think and reflect back on what worked for you, what didn't work for you. Um, what did you say to yourself that was helpful? What did you say to yourself that wasn't helpful? What strategies did you use? Did you start too fast? Could you have gone a little bit faster? So um, be as, as calculated about your review as well uh, and learn those kind of things that will help you in your next event, be it a longer event, be it the next marathon, whatever it might be. Um, that's extremely effective. It, probably the thing that, that, that I think most people can benefit the most from um, to, to learn from one training session to the next or, or from one training session to the race or from one race to the next. No, that's been a very educational and informative chat and I look forward to checking out the website and getting a copy of the book. Thanks very much for your time and I look forward to meeting you again in the near future. Thank you for having me, Owen John. I really, really enjoyed that and I really, really appreciated the invite to chat with you today. So thank you. If you enjoyed this or any of the other podcasts, you might consider leaving a review or subscribing on Apple, Spotify or wherever else you listen. Thank you. Thank you.